1: Good. Come with us. No, 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 the movie Hello everyone and welcome to Movie Oubliette. Uh, this is a cross hemisphere podcast. Uh, my name's Dan and I'm all the way down here in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Conrad. I'm all the way up in Cambridge, UK. <laughs> so in this podcast, we pull out a movie from the dungeons of obscurity and we review it to see whether it should be set free into the world or thrown back into the dungeons to be forgotten forever. That's right. So Dan, how are you? I am great. Uh, I'm I'm doing
0: well and I'm keeping busy. How are you, Conrad? I'm great. It's getting warmer here, which means being cooped up in a studio <laughs> recording for long periods of time is getting a little bit trickier than mm. it was before. But yep. Yeah, it's good. I'm excited to be on episode three already. I can't believe that we're mm. on episode three.
1: Uh, so going back to episode two... There was Mm. one thing that I have recently found out uh, about. So episode two, we reviewed uh, Demons, which was an Mm. uh, Italian-produced film. And I was saying how Italian films, especially Italian horror, it was always dubbed over, the voice was always dubbed over. Even if it was in Italian, it would always be dubbed over in Italian again. Um, And I, I always thought it was a... Uh, a cost saver. Mm. So I I was talking to my sister's fiance, uh, shout out to Ale. Um, <laughs> and he said, he, he's actually Italian. And he said uh. that the majority of Italy doesn't speak proper Italian. Oh. So the majority of Italy actually speaks a dialect of Italian. So their oh, local okay. dialect. So by having all of these actors, from all over Italy in a film They would all have different dialects So speaking slightly <laughs> different versions of Italian And so that's why they, they dub over with real proper Italian In inverted commas um, Okay Yeah and apparently I think up until about 15-20 years ago They were still doing it mm. And even now especially sort of the older generation of Italians
0: Don't speak Proper Italian. Okay, so it's very interesting. <laughs> wow, I had no idea because you tend to think of it as a, I don't know, a fairly small country. But I guess it, I guess it isn't.
1: Yeah, it's it's so it's because it's so traditional. So each little town will uh, preserve their dialect of Italian because it's mm. it's been spoken in that little town for generations, uh, and mm. so yeah.
0: Well, I guess the same is true of the UK because we're we're a relatively small country, really, when you, you look at our population and geographically. But there are so many different dialects. And certainly in American and international films, mm. if you have somebody who isn't from London, who isn't either speaking the Queen's English or Cockney, if you mm. have somebody from the North, they have to subtitle it. Because mm, <laughs> Americans yeah. can't understand what these people are saying, which mm. I find really amusing. Like I was watching a, a making of documentary uh, on one of Christopher Nolan's Batman movies. And I think the assistant director or the cinematographer, I think it's the assistant director, is Scottish. <laughs> and they had, to, oh, yeah. they had to subtitle everything he was saying on the making of because <laughs> they knew the American guys just wouldn't be able to follow what he was saying. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. So, uh, what's the movie that we'll be looking at this episode, Conrad? Well, I shall go over to the Oubliette and pull something out. Ooh. My first time to the Oubliette, actually, because ah. I'm a, a little bit nervous. I think I might put on some safety gear. Oh, yes. These can, guys, they can bite, I think. So I'm mm. going to put on some gloves. Oh, wow. Okay. Very and impressed. Some, yeah, some eye protection. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> um, Be careful. Oh, I we should oil this thing.
1: <laughs> I know.
0: <laughs> okay. I'm reaching in. Oh, no. Okay. Ah, a bit you of back. closer quick. Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, what have I got? So, for this episode, I have a treat for us. It's mm. a British film, it's called Saturn 3. It's directed by Stanley Donan, who's probably best known for directing Singing in the Rain. Yeah. Uh, it's, which is odd when you realize that Saturn 3 is a science fiction movie. And it has the bizarre lineup of Farrah Fawcett, Kirk Douglas, Harvey Keitel, and a killer robot. And it was made in 1979, released in 1980. And in terms of the. Uh, plot. It's about, uh, Kirk Douglas and Farrah Fawcett are these two scientists who are doing research into food production on, uh, Titan, the third moon around Saturn. Ooh. And they're doing this presumably because things have gotten bad on earth and they need food. Or I think it's mentioned that things have gotten bad back home and they've been living a blissful existence there by themselves with their dog Sally. Uh, but, uh, the powers that be are concerned that they need to increase production, so they send Harvey Keitel and his robot to try and speed up production the The only problem being that Harvey Keitel wasn't selected for this mission; he was actually disqualified for being mentally unstable. Mm. Uh, unfortunately, the guy that's supposed to be going on the mission points this out to him and and sort of sort <laughs> of says, "Oh, so you." you you were found to be mentally unstable. That's bad, <laughs> isn't it? Which seems like a very silly thing to say to a person. That's mentally uh, unstable, yeah. <laughs> indeed, Yeah, so He goads him for being mentally unstable and then Harvey Keitel promptly straps himself down to something, opens an airlock and blasts the guy out into space <laughs> <laughs> and replaces him and uh, takes the, the mission down to Saturn 3 to Kirk Douglas and Farrah Fawcett. Where, unfortunately, because of his... uh, He becomes enamoured with Farrah Fawcett and wants to split the couple up and have her for himself. Mm. And thus, tension ensues. What will happen? And and also a killer robot. And a killer robot, because the robot learns by plugging directly into the head of the person who's uh, in charge of them, Mm. in this case, Harvey Keitel, and he unfortunately leaves himself plugged in while he's gazing at Farrah Fawcett and having obviously some very unclean thoughts about her. Um, so the robot ends up being uh, similarly enamoured with Farrah Fawcett mm. and uh, very jealous of Kirk Douglas. And this is clearly not going to end well. Mm. So right. I think that is our setup for Saturn 3, a 1980 British classic can't wait can't wait to talk about it (laughs) okay let's take a break and talk about it when we come back okay we're back so Dan, you hadn't seen Saturn 3 before. This was my pick from the Mm Oubliette. What did you think? (laughs) I was very surprised (laughs) by how disastrous
1: this movie was. (laughs) (laughs) There was not a lot that was going for it that was commendable. Um, (laughs) Which did make the film uh, mostly unintentionally funny. And I pretty much every scene I was I was either shocked, mm-hmm. confused, or just found hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it was, it was quite a strange film in, in the fact that it didn't really know what sort of film it actually was. So there was a lot of kind of campy, quite psychedelic 70s decor and, and, and costumes, but then it was a sci-fi with some horror elements as well, mm. and then the most wooden acting I have probably ever witnessed in a film.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's kind of odd tonally, this movie, because on the one hand, it was conceived as a serious movie, mm. and it is sort of some of the dialogue. You know, it's very po-faced and serious about trying to establish... The culture that we're living mm. in this this futuristic world, in which I think the Earth has become sort of callous and mm. cold, and because I don't know, because of the hardships there, because it the movie kind of suggests that the that Kirk Douglas and Farrah Fawcett's relationship is kind of old fashioned, yeah, and that Harvey Keitel's character Benson is more and progressive and modern, yeah, yeah taking recreational drugs and having a fast and loose attitude to Mm. sex just as a means of physical gratification. So it kind of gives you this sense that it's world-building and they have their own turns a phrase mm. for things that they're talking about. And, and the audience is sort of thrust into this world. And you've got to pick up what they're talking about when they're talking about blue dreamers, the drug that they take mm. for fun. And haven't you been receiving your transmissions? You're supposed to scan them and all this kind of thing. So they're using all these sort of bits of terminology and trying to create a serious future world that we're supposed to believe in mm. whilst running around in bako foil outfits and... It does look very much like a kitschy 70s, 60s, Barbarella-style sci-fi movie. Exactly. With I, this po face dialogue.
1: <laughs> yeah, that that because what's great about Barbarella is it just goes with it. It runs with the kitschy aspect. And it's just a fun, ridiculous, quirky movie. Whereas this was just a little bit too serious for its own good. Mm. So there are moments where... N- you just weren't invested in the seriousness because everything that you were looking at was ridiculous yeah <laughs> i mean even even the set design just looked i don't know like there's there's a the tunnel that they run through, and it's just got thousands of plastic pipes just mm. going in everywhere <laughs> for no reason whatsoever than to look science fiction futuristic. And their clothing is, yeah. Even though this was was filmed in the nineteen seventy nine, right? It felt so seventies. Like it felt just so ingrained in in seventies psychedelic, free love, Mm. um, hippie. It felt so dated, like I couldn't believe it came out in 1980 mm. because it had the kitschiness of a 50s or 60s sci-fi film, mm. but with the psychedelic aspect of the 70s, and also it was in colour with the worst acting
0: imaginable. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so- and you, you, and yet you compare this because a lot of people say, "Well, is this uh, derivative of?" Alien, Mm. Ridley Scott's Alien, which of course was produced in the UK Mm. in the same year. And this suffers so much in comparison with that, because whereas Ridley Scott taking his inspiration from Star Wars Mm. of two years prior and heavy metal Mm. has created a very lived in environment for his characters. So when you're prowling through the Nostromo, the sci-fi corridors are there, but they're all richly detailed Mm. and they look... Old, you know, mm. there's so there are pipes and buttons, and but it's all sort of worn down and used, and you get the sense that there's a function mm. for all of it. Whereas this pristine obsidian corridor with bright blue lights yeah. down, it, <laughs> and then bright primary colored. Extractor fan mm. tubing running down it. You just don't believe in this world mm. at all, do you? It's just not realistic. Mm, no. Well, it's just not. It's not a lived-in environment. It just looks cheap and cheap and tacky. Yeah. To be honest,
1: there, I don't think there was a single scene in the entire movie where I felt like I believed in this world. Mm. Every single scene looked like a set. And every single thing in that set looked like a prop. Mm. I I just felt like I was watching a movie, like knowingly watching a movie. And yeah, I, I never felt immersed in it whatsoever. Another thing that was quite jarring for me because I'm a sound designer, um, was the sound was terrible, <laughs> there was so much dubbing i I felt like almost seventy or eighty percent of it was just looped audio, yeah, and I think i when i i was I was looking at the the runtime and it wasn't until fourteen minutes into the film we actually heard location recorded dialogue right, and everything else was eighty yard and you could tell. And it wasn't mixed well. They didn't put any reverb on any of the dialogue. No. It just felt like it was directly in front of a microphone and they just threw <laughs> it in there, kind of synced it up because some of it was not in sync at all with the lips.
0: No, and I, I wonder if that's because the environment was a difficult one to record in just because it was enclosed plasticky mm. sets or whether farrah fawcett i get the sense talks very softly all the time <laughs> and when she's over the other side of the room that pr- you probably couldn't even hear mm. her yeah and um, harvey Keitel, of course that's a whole other story yeah
1: so harvey Kaitel didn't want to do any of the looping is that he did not no no he just refused out of just sheer denial, or <laughs> like, what? I don't know. Maybe he
0: saw the movie and thought, oh, <laughs> screw this. But it's quite rare to find a movie where an actor who subsequently becomes mm. enormously famous, and then you watch a movie where Early on in their career, their entire performance has been dubbed by somebody else. Yeah. I mean, I can think of one other example, which is Andy McDowell in Greystoke, The Legend of Tarzan, oh, yeah. where her entire performance is dubbed by Glenn Close. Oh, so that, that's And that's right. just a, when you watch it now, it's a really jarring experience. Mm. People have said, I've read in reviews that Harvey Keitel's Brooklyn accent being entirely erased by the mid Atlantic stylings of a guy called Roy Dutrice,
1: mm-hmm.
0: who passed away in October last year, and probably people listening to this might recognise him from Game of Thrones. I've I've read reviews that suggest that the juxtaposition just makes his character creepier. Hmm. <laughs> but I, I'm not sure I buy that to be honest. I think it just makes it weird.
1: Yeah. He did a pretty good job, sounding quite similar to Harvey Keitel, though. I I didn't I didn't actually pick up on it during the movie, and it wasn't until after that, when I read about the production, that I realised that oh, it wasn't even Harvey Keitel.
0: Yeah, in terms of the job he did, it was pretty good in terms of just creating something that was of the same timbre mm. as Harvey Keitel, but doing the performance that obviously the director subsequently decided that he wanted. Mm, right. Um,
1: I guess we have to touch on the actual production of this film because that
0: was that's a big reason why the film is the way it is. Yes, we do. And this has been talked about in great detail by a fan of the film, super fan of the film, Greg Moss, who, who has a, a website called... Um, making of Saturn 3 and did the commentary. (laughs) There's a reason why there's um, so much material on this is because it's it's pretty fascinating. So the film was started by John Barry, who is a production designer. He's often incorrectly attributed to the James Bond movies just because John Barry, the composer, worked Mm. on many of the James Bond movies. But he didn't actually do any of those. But he did the production design for Superman, for Star Wars... He's pretty well-known and well-respected, and he wanted to try his hand at directing. He wrote the original story. His story was turned into a script by Martin Amis, Mm -hmm. who is a British novelist, son of Kingsley Amis, Mm -hmm. which I think is his only screenplay credit, so he obviously had one go at it and decided (laughs) (laughs) we won't try that again. Um, And the film went into production, but I think they had... There are varying reports on why it was that John Barry was eventually supplanted by the producer, Mm. Stanley Donan, who wasn't comfortable with sci-fi at all and clearly didn't uh, find his feet, really, when you look at the result. I
1: mean, he'd done no sci-fi films previously, had he? No,
0: and he had no affinity for it when John Barry brought it to him because they'd worked on a movie prior to that Mm. together. He... He recognised that it it could be an intriguing concept, but he didn't want to do it himself. So he really wasn't comfortable at all. And you can tell, I think. Mm, Yeah. But as for why Stanley Donan replaced John Barry, you can pick a variety of different stories. Mm. You've got Kirk Douglas being not very cooperative, possibly with the underlying motivation that he wanted to direct it himself. Mm you've got John Barry not being very experienced and not doing a very good job because he'd just done set design mm. before and never had really directed actors or set up shots or anything like that, yeah, sure. which is – I'm not sure whether that holds true because he did second unit work on the Star Wars movies and actually went back to doing second unit work for The Empire Strikes Back after he – departed the set of saturn three so there are varying reports i don't know which one of them we choose to believe but yeah yeah sure it's it was a fraught situation and what makes it particularly sad is that after john barry left and he was working on empire strikes back he became ill and subsequently died at a pretty young age yeah i think
1: he was he was only 43 when he died yeah and he I think he contracted a rare case of
0: meningitis. Yeah, that yeah. That's very very um saddening. It is sad and I think there was some there was some comments around the time that you know nobody else caught it and maybe he was just run down as a result oh. of his experience on Saturn 3 that he'd had such a gruelling time of it that his immune system had been compromised and as a result he he succumbed to something that he may have otherwise had recovered from but yeah who knows it's it's all speculation but it it makes for a a fraught working environment Mm. for the film i'm surprised i even finished it really yeah under the circumstances you would think if you're Bleeding money. And, and, I mean, the background to this is that this is a an ITC production. It's produced by Lord Lou Grade, who was uh, involved in television a lot in the UK, uh, particularly the Super Marionation productions of Gerry Anderson, mm. and was sort of trying his hand at being, I don't know, a Dino De Laurentiis style movie mogul as well, and was producing a couple of films at the time. Saturn 3, which obviously as a disaster, or was a disaster, <laughs> yeah. and raised the Titanic, which also proved to be a disaster and was um, going over budget. I think he was, he was quoted at the time for saying it would have been cheaper to lower the Atlantic <laughs> than to raise the <laughs> Titanic, which I find quite funny. So he's got two productions that are going off the rails and he he's cutting the budget of Saturn 3 and i think you can see the effect of that on the special effects i mean
1: at, at the same time if you look at the actual budget of Saturn 3 it's pretty baffling that this was the result of i think it cost 9 million dollars yeah i think some reports say it overran to 10 so apparently that was pretty much the same budget as alien right um
0: so you can see why I'm confused. Yeah, just look at the the talent on show, the the sort of genre-defining imagery that you got from Alien compared to (laughs) Kirk Douglas and Farrah Fawcett jogging in 70s outfits through a piece Mm. of plastic tubing. It's just... But even
1: some—I mean, some of the scenes were were quite cool. Like some of the miniatures of the spaceships were quite good. Like especially the opening um scene was actually very grand, and the music was, uh, it was huge. And I was I was actually looking forward to this film, but mm. as soon as it got down to the actual set that weren't the miniatures, um, yeah, then I got very disappointed. <laughs> um,
0: yeah, the opening is, of course, an enormous spaceship looming overhead, an entering shot and looming mm. overhead, so it's just a complete rip-off of Star uh, Wars. Yeah. I thought it's still impressive, though. Impressive. Still impressive. It's still impressive, and certainly Alien opens fairly similarly. The Nostromo does mm. go overhead, although it's in the second shot, not the first. But the, the special effects for the journey to Saturn three have been criticized because the design of the spaceship is oh. the landing craft is interesting. It looks like a fly almost.
1: It does. that's what I actually thought. I actually wrote that down. <laughs> spaceship looks like a fly, <laughs> fly. <laughs> so far. I didn't understand the asteroid bit because he looks like he's he looks like he's on water and the asteroids are floating rocks.
0: Yes. Is that was that what I that's what I thought I was looking at but Yes, that's exactly what they did They're pulling a small model jerkily through a tank (laughs) (laughs) And I I actually think Because people criticise this I actually think the imagery is kind of interesting Because I've certainly not seen that As a depiction of flying through Saturn's rings before
1: No, no I mean, I, I, I felt like a lot of the effects Just made you think Oh, I can see exactly what they're doing here That's an effect Mm. So like a lot of some of the other miniatures with, with the spaceships, they just looked like miniatures. Yeah. Or when he was flying over the moon and you could see the terrain, it looked
0: like a model moon. Yeah, really. They does. just didn't pull it off. It's not detailed enough and it's not lit and shot in the way that makes you convinced that there's any kind of scale here. Yeah. It looks like what it is, which is about, you know, a meter by two meters of plaster. <laughs> It's, it's, it's terrible.
1: I also liked that when they, when they get into the moon and the, and the science uh, lab that they're in, um, everything just seems to be, I I felt like they, they must've bought maybe, I don't know, a million LEDs and just thought, let's put them on everything, Mm. because there just seemed (laughs) to be lights everywhere. Like, the the cameras, the security cameras, just looked like three LEDs attached to
0: a piece of Lego. Uh, It
1: didn't look like a camera at all.
0: (laughs) No, no, it doesn't. And everything looks brand spanking new. I don't know how long uh, Kirk and... Farrah have been on this planet, but it looks like they just arrived yesterday mm. and pulled off the shrink wrapping. It all <laughs> looks brand spanking new, mm. which mm. again, you compare that to Star Wars and Alien and you're, you're it's just so unconvincing as as a way to build a, a world for this drama to take place in.
1: Mm.
0: Yeah. I I felt...
1: That Harvey cartel's character um, So his name was Captain Benson Benson, yeah that right. That's right Yeah, I. his character just didn't I just I mean, I understand he had mental issues He was mentally unstable But there, there was no reasoning behind it He just seemed crazy for the sake of crazy mm. And there was not an ounce of just normality in him whatsoever. So I just didn't buy it. And he had no motivations at all. He just seemed like a very Randy kind of guy. Just wanted to get into <laughs> get
0: in the sack with um, um, Alex. With Alex, Alex yeah, Farrah character, Far Fawcett's character yeah. Alex, who um, seems like she falls into the trope of the born yesterday, but born sexy mm. sci-fi trope, the same as Fifth Element where... Which is kind of dodgy when you think about Fifth Element, that essentially this character is sexy, but she was just created a day ago. Mm. So she's a child, really. But Farrah Fawcett has that sort of ingenue, innocence about her. She's never been to Earth. No. I don't know whether she's been living on the moon all of her life or she's just never been back to Earth. And she's curious about Earth. But Kirk Douglas, who is the grizzled veteran, hmm. sort of warns her away from it. You know, this is why we've escaped Earth. This is why we don't live there. So I wonder whether Benson's character is meant to be suggestive of this is what Earth is like now. This is sort of the culture there. People are just callous and cruel hmm. and selfish and purely hedonistic. And- yeah.
1: But he's completely cold. Yeah.
0: Like he has no emotions whatsoever. no. And the deadpan voiceover <laughs> contributes to that <laughs> yeah. completely. Yeah, it, it surely does. Um, Also,
1: the age differences of the actors. Um, yeah. It's quite huge. It right? is. So Kirk Douglas was 64, I believe, mm. and Farrah Fawcett was 33, and then Harvey Keitel was 41.
0: Yeah, so I, th- I think Farrah Fawcett... I th- I read somewhere she turned 32 on set, which would make her exactly half Kirk Douglas's age. I'm not oh, sure, right. yeah. which is true, but it it's a pretty big gap. Yes, sort of 30 30 odd years. Mm. I, I was looking up other age differences, and obviously, probably the most famous is. Woody Allen with his leading ladies. Yeah, don't get me started on Woody Allen. <laughs> really? Are you, not, are you not a fan of Woody Allen?
1: Um, yeah, he's very hit and miss and mostly misses, I have to say. <laughs> yeah,
0: I haven't seen a lot of his films. The only one that I, I saw that I enjoyed was um, Everyone Says I Love You. And I only love that just because of the scene where he's with Goldie Horn dancing in front of the Seine in Paris and she starts to fly oh. because... That sort of thing makes me go all sort of sappy. I kind of like that. Yeah, I haven't seen that one. It's fun if you want to see people who really shouldn't do musical numbers attempting musical numbers. (laughs) It's great fun for that because it's a musical. So you've got Julia Roberts trying to sing, which Mm. is just priceless. But yeah, in in other films like Husbands and Wives, he's 56. Juliet Lewis, whose love interest, is 19. So that's 37 years in Mm. terms of a gap. Yeah. Or in Entrapment, Sean Connery and and Catherine Zeta-Jones, I think the the age gap there is 39. So there have been worse age gaps, but it's pretty marked here. But it's even a plot point, isn't it? Hmm. And I think it was intentional.
1: Yeah, it was. So Kirk Douglas's character was an old man and he needed to retire and... Harvey Keitel's character was the new young upstart at
0: 40 years of age (laughs) that that was going to take his place. Yeah, and he he even says at one point, he says to Alex, doesn't it disgust you to be touched by him? Mm. So it gives you a sense of how shallow and, I, I don't know, how cruel and heartless... Either he is or society on Earth is. Because the only thing that we're told is that he's mentally unstable. We're not necessarily told that he's an asshole.
1: Yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I felt like maybe they, they should have shown Earth and shown the people of Earth to, so that we had a gauge of what humans were like now. Because mm. apparently they were very different to... Kirk Douglas and, Vera <laughs> of I keep forgetting the character names, um, Adam and Alex's uh, characters, um, on on the moon. Yeah,
0: it's very odd, and as a dynamic, uh, I'm not sure it works because you've got Harvey Keitel being a cold fish who, for some reason, is just he's just arrived, mm. and his first his opening gambit is you're disgusting old man I'm because he even has the scene where he goes up to walks in on them when they've just had sex Hmm. and says I'm leaving and I'm taking Alex with me yeah yeah as if that's going to be okay under what circumstance does he think that's going to be fine (laughs) yeah I know exactly
1: I did like that that scuffle that ensued after, mm. where Kirk Douglas is wrestling with him completely naked. Yeah, <laughs> um, <laughs> which apparently Kirk Douglas just wanted to take his clothes off for all the
0: scenes. Um, yeah, Martin Amos said subsequently um, that when actors get old, they just get. Obsessed with being naked on screen for some <laughs> yeah, right. reason. I'm trying to think of other examples where I've seen that happen. I can't think of any.
1: No, I can't. I've never seen a naked scuffle before. Uh, that was interesting. Um,
0: I mean, it's a bold statement.
1: <laughs> yeah. So the movie was trying to. I, I, f- I felt like the film was quite exploit. Like it was what, like watching an exploitation film at times because Fear Fawcett's character mm. is wearing next to nothing all the time. Yes, um, and
0: exposing her breasts quite often, and there's a lot of talk mm. about her body. And Kirk Douglas has this whole thing where he says, "I'm going to try and I'm going to you you'd slowly undress, and I'll try to maintain my composure." And it's kind of set up as a game between a loving couple, mm. but it does objectify Farrah Fawcett a great deal. I it mean, does. other than she loves her dog Sally, she loves Kirk Douglas, but we're not told why, and she's sort of quizzical about Earth, mm. she doesn't really have much agency in the movie. In fact, a lot of the movie is just putting her in jeopardy. Well, I mean, they're, they're supposed to be scientists, right? Yeah. And
1: they're and they're researching plant growth, hydroponic growth of plants, but there wasn't a, a great deal of sciencey <laughs> business going on. There was a lot. There, instead, there was a lot of sleeping, yep, having sex, yep, and just kind of exercising mm. and walking around. Um, yeah, you
0: can understand why they're a bit pissed with their productivity rate, can't you? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We've got to do something, let send down a robot. Yeah, she was a, a molecular biologist and was a genius and we got to see her hard at work, but she just seemed to sort of saunter around in a variety of bizarre clothing mm. and pet a dog.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly.
0: So we have to talk about the killer robot. We uh, do. Hector. Hector. <laughs> mm. Who, of course, I looked up thinking this must have some inner meaning, you know, within the context of this. Maybe Adam is supposed to be the first man and Alex is kind of a, an Eve and mm. and ben, Benson is Satan. And uh, I don't know. Mm. Uh, but And Hector is from Greek mythology and he was the greatest warrior of Troy and that's it. I couldn't see anything that was being mo- mobilised here in terms of meaning.
1: No. Um, so they, they did mention it in the film as well. They actually they did talk about Hector being named after the greatest warrior and was uh, killed by uh, Achilles mm. and dragged around the city. Um, but there wasn't any similarities to the film. There was no parallels whatsoever. Um, it just seemed... Almost pointless, yeah. Really, um, yeah, I think that's a fair summarization. <laughs> <laughs> so, this killer robot is, is made up of children's brains. Is that, yeah. is that right?
0: <laughs> he has a very, very a just ridiculously large test tube. Yeah, it's the biggest test tube ever seen on film, filled with fetus brains that look oddly like marshmallow. <laughs> <laughs> Suspended in water. Yes. And this is plonked inside an oversized robot body that supposedly was designed based on Leonardo da Vinci's anatomical sketches. Oh, right. But uh, I looked up Leonardo da Vinci's anatomical sketches and I can't see Hector <laughs> in there anywhere. I don't know. <laughs>
1: but I mean, I can maybe see some similarities with... Because there was a lot of wiring... And in tubing that kind of suggested, you know, muscles and mm. I don't, I guess that, that sort of thing. But he didn't have a head. No. And I have I felt like that was a mistake because... Well, he had a stalk, didn't he? Yeah, he had a little little stem that came out with two little <laughs> <laughs> LED eyes. Um, but it made it look laughable yeah. and it was supposed to be menacing and terrifying, but every time I saw her, I just laughed. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And yeah, it's almost like, you know, you make, it's like if they'd made the alien creature, this huge, disgusting creature, but then made his, face just two little tiny eyes on a tiny little stalk (laughs) like it it doesn't make any sense it's not terrifying um and also his mobility was very limited so that was another hilarious
0: thing because he just didn't move fast anywhere no he lumbered and i didn't really understand the threat that he Posed. You would have thought with a mm. good sprint, and the two of them were jogging plenty of yeah. plenty of the time. You would have thought with a good sprint, they could have kept ahead of him until his batteries ran down. Mm. There's a scene where he, to demonstrate his abilities, they get him to pick up a can yeah. and he picks it up fine. And then as he turns around and goes to hand it to somebody, he crushes it. But that doesn't make sense at all, because if he were going to crush it, he would have done it when he was first trying to figure out what a grip would be. Mm, exactly. He would have crushed it then, but instead he picks it up perfectly delicately, then sort of displays it and crushes it at that point and destroys it. And so everybody says, mm. ooh, obviously some fine tuning to do here. <laughs> I, I didn't understand the threat that he posed particularly. No, I just... Found him hilarious.
1: There was one scene where he was playing where Hector was playing chess. Mm. They actually looked quite good. Mm. And apparently that scene was was one of the few scenes
0: that John Barry directed yeah, before he left. St- still in the production. movie. Yeah. Um but everything else, no. <laughs> no, it's I think he was supposed to be seeing the slow decline in Hector's mental state as he's plugged into Harvey Keitel more and more often for his training sessions and picking up all of this pent-up jealousy and insanity, and that's int- you know that could be an interesting story. I mean, certainly one of the things that I find most interesting about Peter Hyams. 2010, the sequel to 2001. Mm. I don't know if you've seen that. I have. Is that the eventual explanation for why Hal killed everybody in in the first movie, which was never really explained at the time, was because he was instructed to lie. He was supposed to ensure that the two astronauts on the Discovery didn't find out about the monolith. Mm. And logic dictated that the only way he could think of doing that was to kill them. Yes. Because they'd never find out if he killed them. Mm. The whole idea of computers not being sort of insane, cold, homicidal maniacs for no reason, it's because they reflect their creators, that they inherit the worst aspects of humanity and that's Mm. why they end up going off the rails in in machine-on-the-loose movies like this Yeah, is kind of interesting, but Hector as a prop is just so unexpressive that you just don't get much from this lumbering piece of prop work that apparently cost a million dollars to make. I know. (laughs) And I can't see where the money went, to be honest.
1: Mm. Apparently it needed 20 crew members to work it (laughs) as well, and and most of the (laughs) movements were operated with radio signals. Um, Yeah, I I felt like they they went too far. Mm. Like if they'd created a robot that was very simple, Like even even something like something from the original Lost in Space. Mm. Something that had some sort of way of expressing communication well. Mm. Because this Hector didn't even speak until right at the end of the movie. Mm. And even when he did speak, it was just the voices of Harvey Cartel's character. With no effects on it. So it didn't mm. sound like it was this scary robot version of his voice. It was just his voice. Mm. So it, I didn't believe it. No. um, Yeah, so a huge, <laughs> huge waste of money mm.
0: and very laughable. It is, yeah. And it's very difficult to generate any kind of suspense. I mean, you had moments of jeopardy where... Alex was picked up by Hector by her arms and just hoisted above the ground because Hmm. the robot's eight feet tall. So until somebody comes in and manages to calm the robot down or something, I don't know. And there's a scene where, of course, the dog gets it early on. Mm. Hector kills the dog. I'm not entirely sure why. He seems embarrassed about it, though. He's sort of high... (laughs) I know. He's sort of sauntering in the bushes. (laughs) He is sort of like doing the Homer Simpson (laughs) disappear into the the bushes thing. Yeah. So you have a few moments of jeopardy early on. But then the third act tries to be sort of really exciting. So it comes to a crunch point with naked Kirk Douglas battling... (laughs) Uh, Harvey Keitel Keitel rendering Kirk unconscious by cold-cocking him and trying to drag Farrah Fawcett away. And then Hector intervenes because although they've disassembled Hector because they recognise that he was going off the rails, he has reassembled himself. Possibly the most boring reassembly. Well, I I guess they were (laughs)
1: trying to make it horrifying, but it was just boring And very slow
0: and bits just slowly getting put back together. Yes. (laughs) This was supposed to be thrilling. And as well as that, you can tell that every single shot is in reverse Mm. because they clearly could not get the robots to position the various bits (laughs) of Hector correctly. So they just had to get the robots to pull the things away because that Mm. was the only way to get it to work. So, yeah, he's reassembled himself and he intervenes between um, Benson's attempt to abduct Alex Which is a scene I find really peculiar because, spoiler alert, he attacks Benson Benson, and he just seems to put his hand up when Benson throws a punch or Mm. karate chops him. I'm not sure what he's (laughs) trying to do. And and Benson's hand just comes off. I
1: know. Yeah, just severed just like that. Just
0: like that. And then you end up with this... This Obviously, rubber hand on the ground. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm just thinking, well, either Hector's upgraded himself and put razors on his hands, or uh, Harvey Keitel is a very delicate man (laughs) who just shatters at the slightest (laughs) contact with with a metal object. Mm, mm. I don't
1: know. There were a few horrifying scenes, like that severed hand scene... And the scene at start when um, Harvey Keitel ejects that guy into space and he explodes into, he, he seemed to turn into terracotta and just explode yeah. into <laughs> <Yeah>. orange shards. <laughs> um, anyway, I, I actually really like those scenes, even though they were ridiculous, but they were kind of shocking and unexpected. And I, I wish there was more of that.
0: Um, but there wasn't. <laughs> yeah, it woke me up. That was the thing I was going to say, because I got an hour in and thought, God, is this movie mm. going anywhere? And then that scene happened with the severed hand. And I thought, oh, actually, this is quite shocking. Yeah, exactly. And you have a scene of Alex and Adam, once they've recovered from the shock of this sort of looking down there foreboding dark corridors yeah. of plastic tubing, <laughs> trying to figure out where is Hector and can they get to the escape ship in time? And I thought, okay, this is actually quite interesting now. But again, it didn't really live up to the the suspense that it attempted mm. to generate. I, I felt like they, they were going full steam ahead
1: and then they just decided to take a break. Yeah. Um you know they they were running away they 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 were about to go in the spaceship and then it explodes and then they just return back dejected a little bit sad but there was <laughs> there was no tension anymore there was no suspense it was as if they'd just given up and they were like oh well Yeah, (laughs) Back to the space station (laughs) Back to the killer robot
0: (laughs) Yeah let's just go back to the room with all the buttons And I think there's even a deleted portion of the scene where they're sat in the control room Where Alex begins to laugh uncontrollably Because she's remembering an earlier scene where they took drugs And Kirk Douglas was wearing her scarf
1: Oh, it's that what that was all about. Because they took the drug but nothing happened. It just
0: Yeah. So they well see the version that I, I watched did have the drug taking scene. Oh, in it, it didn't have that in my version. Ah, so I got to see Alex in her coming out outfit, which, my goodness, as Kirk Douglas points out, you're definitely coming out of that. (laughs) It's this ridiculous PVC Barbarella costume that Farrah Fawcett is clearly uncomfortable wearing. And I think. Her influence is one of the reasons why it's not in most cuts of the film. Oh, right. And the two of them are just behaving ridiculously, as though they're smashed out of their brains. Uh-huh. And Kirk Douglas is prancing around with this sort of uh y scarf around himself. <laughs> so... You have a, a deleted portion of that scene where they're in the control room at the very end, where she just Alex just bursts out laughing, remembering this happy time that they had a few days ago. And <laughs> what? You think, hang on, let's let's just backtrack a little bit here. You're trapped mm. on a space station with a robot that is clearly homicidal, and you have no way of escaping because the ship just blew up. Mm. And you're just going to sit in the control room and have a bit of a giggle about that hilarious cross-dressing moment you had (laughs) earlier. There
1: was another horrifying scene that um, was when they Hector, the robot, he he drags away Benson Mm. uh, with his seven hand and he takes off his face and
0: puts it... (laughs) On his own face, but yeah. well, he didn't have a head. You were complaining earlier that he didn't have a head, and now you're complaining when he steals Harvey Keitel's. I mean, I did like that scene because I was so um,
1: shocked by it. But then they didn't show it again. He didn't continue to have
0: Harvey Keitel's ha- head. He just no. went back to his. Two little LEDs Well, supposedly it was like a suspense moment Because they hear Harvey Keitel's, well, Roy Dotrice's voice (laughs) Over the intercom system Mm. And Benson's face comes up on the monitors Mm. And they think, oh, he's alive Hector hasn't killed him And he says, yes, I've got the situation entirely under control Come and Mm. see me But notably, he doesn't say that on screen His face disappears after the fleeting glimpse so they're lulled into a false sense of security, thinking that everything's okay, leave the control room, and lo and behold, no, Hector's just ripped Benson's head off and <laughs> plonked it over his eyestalks, <laughs> yeah. and has finally found his voice and is imitating Benson. Yeah. And, and this was supposed to be like a big shocking moment and I guess it is it works as that I mean it was
1: it was I just wish they'd continued with it like I I, that that final climactic scene I wished it was Harvey Keitel's head on top of that robot Mm. that would have been terrifying I did actually quite like that the final scene though with um spoiler alert um Adam jumps into a pool of Something chemicals. Hmm. Not entirely sure what that chemical was. Um, with the robot and and some sort of explosive, and then they just explode. Yes. And and what a huge and magnificent explosion that was. As well. <laughs> I, I was really impressed by that. But I, I kind of expected bits of Adam to be flying around <laughs> as well.
0: But no, it was just bits of Hector the robot. Just bits of Hector, and yes. It's surprisingly coquettish about showing too much gore. Hmm. I think there was a scene in the movie originally where it was a parody of of Benson disassembling Hector. There was a scene where you saw what Hector did to Benson. Oh, wow. Where you see the robot pulling Harvey Keitel's arms off. Oh, my God. (laughs) And pulling off his head. Yeah. Now, there are two reasons for removing that scene. One, it ruins the whole surprise of the scene where yeah. Hector fools them into okay. to coming downstairs. Yeah. But also, apparently, uh, Lord Lou Grade was, was appalled by the, the violence. So there were various moments of violence that were excised. Mm. So you'll notice that when Hector is sort of chasing them around the station at the end, he is covered in gore. yeah. When they're in the um, sort of walkways underneath the walkways, which I didn't understand. So they've pulled the grating up and they're running around underneath the tunnels. So there are miniature Mm. tunnels under the tunnels (laughs) for some reason. I'm not sure why. But they're running around in there. And whenever he's sort of reaching down and and trying to grab them, there are sort of bits of red tendrils and Ah, and bits of. Bits of Harvey Cartel (laughs) (laughs) hanging off him. I mean, that scene actually prefigures a similar scene in Aliens, I noticed, because that whole thing of um, somebody being stalked under a a grilled section of the floor is very much like Newt being chased by the alien queen in the finale of Aliens. Yeah, so it it's, it's surprisingly toothless, really. That it's supposed to be a shocking, horrifying movie, and it was still R-rated, mm. but a lot of the the opportunities for uh, shocking gore and violence were removed. Yeah, and definitely, it's an it's an oversight that Kirk Douglas isn't among the debris that flies up in the final explosion, <laughs> um, because he should be. He really mm, should be. Yeah, he should be. Coming to you live from the Movie Oubliette Theatre, it's the prestigious Moobly Awards! Yes, it's time for the Moobly Awards, where we nominate some favourite elements from this episode's movie in a number of fantastic categories, starting with, of course, favourite quote. Uh, so, Dan, did you have a favourite quote?
1: So, uh, most of the dialogue was <laughs> outrageous. Um, yes, and awful. So, so my favourite quote was from Benson, so played by Harvey mm-hmm. Keitel, and he says to Alex, Farrah Fawcett's character, Yes, you have a great body. May I use it? <laughs> 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 I mean, it's such... Such an awkward and just inappropriate thing to say, and it came out of
0: nowhere <laughs> as well. Um, I was laughing a lot at that. Yes, me too. That's exactly the one I've written down. He's—they've only just met as well. I think this is like their second conversation yeah. after being introduced. Is you have a great body? May I use it? Mm. Which again is indicative of the callous, hedonistic, free society that Earth has become. Mm. But yeah.
1: There was another another quote um, that was a close um, second. So Benson has just arrived on the moon and he's holding the big test tube of brains <laughs> and Adam, Adam says to him, I'll take that. And Benson just says, no. <laughs> it's not how people act no. in real life,
0: I guess. And so,
1: yeah, it was just ridiculous.
0: No, and he says to him, no tactile contact. Mm. What other kind of contact is there than tactile? (laughs) (laughs) It's true. It's very true. So, most 80s moment, and I I have a particular favourite for this, which is... The explosion that you mentioned. Yeah. I think it's a particular 80s phenomenon, but whenever there's an explosion, there should be 300 cameras on it from different <laughs> angles at different frame rates, and we should watch them all. <laughs> In slow motion as well. In slow motion, <laughs> yeah. It, it Any explosion has to be viewed for about three minutes from every possible angle mm. because it's only going to happen once, and I don't know, it was expensive, so...
1: I, I, I mean, felt like... Uh, each angle, it didn't feel like we were looking at an explosion. It felt like they'd just thrown robot parts in the air and, <laughs> and buckets of water. <laughs> yeah. My favourite 80s moment was... Well, I, I didn't actually find it very 80s, to be honest. I, felt, no, no, I found it's it been, more, it's 70s. more 70s. Um, yeah. So I felt like my favourite 70s moment was just <laughs> the costumes. All of them (laughs) They had had a costume change almost every scene And everything Mm. looked remarkably comfortable Mm. So uh, apparently Kirk Douglas took home the
0: clothes from the set Because (laughs) they were some of the most comfortable clothes (laughs) he'd ever worn Um, And they did look comfortable (laughs) They did, yeah They were having a nice time, weren't they? (laughs) Um, Moving on from clothes then What about hair? What's your nomination for best hair? Um, I mean, you're in a movie starring Farrah Fawcett. She, yeah, she wins. Really. She <laughs> wins. Although, surprisingly, she has straight hair in this movie, whereas she was famous, for certainly during the Charlie's Angels period, mm. for this, not exactly an 80s perm, but certainly very feathery, curly. Yes, yeah. She has that in the final scene,
1: when after everyone explodes and she goes back to Earth, <laughs> um, she has a
0: big... Cascading curly locks. Yeah, she does. Yeah, and she does in the uh, Barbarella outfit that was cut from the movie as oh, well. Damn, I missed that scene. <laughs> you did, yes. Look it up on YouTube. I will. <laughs> I, I actually thought that in the scene after uh, Benson's been attacked by Hector Harvey Keitel, who has his hair sort of pulled back into a pretty severe. Not a man bun, it's like a ponytail. Yeah. Uh, But it comes loose. So he has sort of this feathery almost Rachel from Friends look. (laughs) Briefly. And I thought that was quite a special moment that almost got him a best hair nomination, but it has to be Farraforce. Yeah, I think. For sure.
1: Favourite scene? Um I just liked all the horror scenes, really, because everything else was really <laughs> it's just bad. atrocious. Um, I did, I did find the exercising scene funnier than it should have been. I think <laughs> um, Kirk Douglas is skipping and he's trying to do these double jumps, but he's really struggling and it really shows. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and yet the the whole point of the movie and the reason for his nudity, supposedly, was to show how virile he still was at 64. I mean, it has to be said, Kirk is still with us at time of recording. He is 101. Holy shit, really? He is, he is is 101, whereas Farrah Fawcett, bless her, is no longer with us. She fell foul of of cancer and died the same day as Michael Jackson, so she didn't really make the headlines, bless her. Very sad. Most cliched horror moment. Well, it was barely a horror movie. Um, <laughs> so maybe most cliched sci-fi moment.
1: Yeah, I guess the the whole ejecting a, a person to into space. Uh, is very cliche sci-fi pretty much happens in every single sci-fi movie set in space um, <laughs> yeah. but they don't normally turn into terracotta and then explode into <laughs> small shards so um, that was no. interesting <laughs>
0: how about no, you? Usually, they usually blow up and explode, no I think you, I, that was exactly what I'd written down as well Yeah, explosive decompression or airlock moment is definitely mm. a favourite of sci-fi yes. of the late 70s and the 80s Favourite special
1: effect? I would say Hector was my favourite laughable special effect (laughs) because he was ridiculous in every scene. They just put too much into him, they just needed to simplify him, that's all they needed to do. But no, No. they put tubes and wires and LEDs and everything that you could buy at your local electronics store. (laughs) Um, And they all shoved it into this one million dollar robot that was horrible in every scene he was in How about you, Conrad?
0: Well, I think it's probably the hand coming off because it is is a bit of a shock Mm. Not least because you're surprised that Benson is quite so fragile But um, yeah, the head doesn't look a lot like Benson It does look like a head, I'll give Mm. them that Yeah, But um, no, I don't know really. There are some optical effects in it that are particularly dodgy. Like early on, there's a scene aboard the spaceship that Benson comes from. Mm. And it's supposed to show this sort of futuristic weird gravity situation where people are walking along this enormous hallway Mm. on the ground, but they're also up on the ceiling. But my eyes just couldn't make sense of that shot because obviously they just... It, they only had one piece of the set and they lit it the same way and just flipped it mm. and filled the screen with it like a kaleidoscope. Yeah. So I was just staring at it thinking I, my eyes just cannot make sense of what this shot is. Mm. Um, yeah, I was quite confused with that. I, I thought, oh, wow, this is going to be a very arty mm. experimental film. But nope, it wasn't. <laughs> no, it really wasn't. Okay, uh, sound effect. Do you have a favourite or worst sound effect? I've always got worst ones. Worst sound effect for sure uh, was
1: was Hector. They just had this really (laughs) high-pitched kind of sound for whenever he moved. I guess you only really heard it when there was close-ups of his tiny little face, <laughs> so I but was really—wasn't moving. Yeah, I was really confused because when when he was moving, like walking down the the hallway, you could only hear very slow footsteps and nothing else. Mm. So none of that real um, cliche uh, 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 robot sound, mm. but there was still that really high synthetic noise for mm. his his face I, uh, it was horrible very badly mixed in the entire film by the way yes very ob-
0: obnoxiously loud sounds where, when they shouldn't have mm. been that loud no and otherwise just deathly silence I think, again <laughs> yeah <laughs> and you conrad favorite sound well unfortunately i just have worst again it's always the same maybe <laughs> we should change the category <laughs> But um, it's it's when the rocket Benson's rocket is landing on Saturn Three, and the boosters fire to sort of uh, control his descent, mm. and you get the oldest stock thunder sound effect that's ever existed. Comes out of out of. First of all, that is not the sound that I expect a rocket to oh, make. Right. And second of all, that thunder sound effect was it Castle Thunder? Is it the one that? That, Maybe
1: that one. I remember, yeah. like Castle Thunder, is was was the only only thunder sound they used for many, many, many years in, in movies. Yeah, uh, it might have been that. Ah, I didn't, I didn't pick that.
0: Interesting. Ah, uh, you have to go back, and because it's, it's nearly as bad as the Wilhelm scream, I think, just in terms of being overused. <laughs> yeah, for
1: sure. Um, I have to say that the sound in general was horrendous in the entire film. And I actually wrote down the sound mixer's <laughs> names so that I can vilify them. Um, so the sound guys involved in this film, uh, the dubbing mixer, Jerry Humphreys, and the sound mixer, Derek Ball. Horrible sound mixing. <laughs> the dubbing mixing was the worst I've ever heard in a film. And the guy that did all the electronic sound effects did they did they just get hold of one uh, modular synthesizer for a day and just spend a day Mm. churning out the most generic (laughs) synthesized sounds possible and then they threw it at this movie yep because that's what it sounded like and it didn't sound like it came from the 80s it sounded like it came from the fifties. Mm. Very disappointed.
0: Yep. <laughs> so, sh- shame on those named sound designers. Exactly. <laughs> uh, and as always, our final category is a st- is the uh, star rating for fake blood. Although we've never actually given star ratings <laughs> no, so we far, haven't. we've just talked talked about the blood. I mean, it's it's eighties bright red blood. It's not quite seventies thick paint. Mm. It's more that sort of gl- glistening translucent blood that you i used to get at halloween Mm. in little squeezy bottles and put on my fake plastic vampire fangs yeah but there wasn't
1: a lot of blood anyway no not at all i think we've said that quite quite a lot we (laughs) We haven't really seen a a blood filled movie
0: yet Mm. yet there's still time so
1: i give this one a
0: half star for blood (laughs) yeah Half star forever. Well, lack of it. <laughs> okay, and that is the Mobley Awards.
1: If I could say anything good about the film, I would say that the score was actually quite good. Ah, I quite enjoyed the score. It's that's Elmer Bernstein. Yeah, Elmer Bernstein did the score. Apparently, there was an an over an hour's worth of music, but they just cut it down and i think there's only i don't know 10 minutes or something in the entire film of, mm. of
0: actual music which is a wise decision i think in a lot of cases because the scene where the film sort of turns into its its third act and mm. you know, benson's hand is removed and hector mm. drags him away and you think oh dear we're really in some jeopardy now that is unscored Mm. there is no music in that scene and it actually makes it more frightening that's true um, or in as much as it it is frightening yeah alma bernstein actually took a different approach with this score and he was a bit disappointed that they cut so much of it out because he went with rock
1: for quite a lot of it right so
0: if you can imagine late 70s rock in this movie mm, like sort of tangerine dream kind of or well i think it was more acoustic oh. i mean you can hear electric guitars in there so really that sort of, did that diddle did, <laughs> did. every time you see hector when he's rebuilding himself you've got the orchestra and you've ah. got a male voice choir Chanting hummus, as far as I could tell. <laughs> yeah, hummus, I thought was hummus. A hummus, quite strange thing <laughs> to be chanting. Um, it can't be that. It must be something yeah. in Latin. I did quite like.
1: I quite like that, though. I did. I did enjoy the score yeah. that was there. Um, often it was quite mismatched, though. Uh, like mm. the music would be terrifying, and then it would just be shots of Hector.
0: Um. <laughs> lumbering along <laughs>
1: Exactly. now it's time for Random
0: Trivia oh it's one of the most exciting times in the pod it's the time that Dan tells us something about this film that we may not have known uh, so, we've mentioned most of the
1: things I was going <laughs> to say. It's such uh, a peculiar movie. Yes. Uh, but I do have to say that this movie took 79 craftsmen and four months to build the set. And it was <laughs> so huge, apparently, that the first few days of shooting, the crew just kept getting lost. Um, and they had to post maps all over the set <laughs> just in case um, so it's, it's impressive that the movie has such an immense set mm. but it's a shame that it looks so shit um,
0: <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah good work which is kind this. of a theme with this movie isn't it? <laughs> well, with Hector costing a million and looking like a lumbering turd yeah
1: <laughs> I just don't understand where they put the money but oh well <laughs> that's uh that's my random true year moment marvellous Okay, now it's down to the wire and it is our final verdict for the film. And what did you think, Conrad? Should we set it free
0: or throw <laughs> it
1: back in the dungeon?
0: Well, this is a case where I kind of feel embarrassed and I think this may happen quite often in our podcasting <laughs> life <laughs> together. But I pulled this one out of the oubliette and I'm just, I, I had memories of it being Interesting And that I kind of enjoyed it When I saw it in the 80s as a kid mm. But I have to say on watching it again with fresh eyes As an adult I think this movie stinks <laughs> It does I
1: can only think of one word That describes how I feel About this movie And that is appalled I'm appalled <laughs> at how they can throw Nine million dollars And end up with one of the worst movies I have ever seen in my entire life <laughs> But I have to say it was funny Unintentionally funny <laughs> But it was funny So you were entertained? I was entertained But extremely appalled at
0: the <laughs> lack of
1: anything <laughs> um, Yeah So are we setting it free or throwing it in a dungeon?
0: I don't think we're going to have a long discussion here <laughs> No. Not at all. in fact, I'm tempted not to just put it back in the oubliette. I'm tempted to throw it in a shallow pit of sudsy water And blow it up <laughs> <laughs> With six cameras <laughs> With six slow motion cameras <laughs> At different angles But that's probably cruel and unusual punishment
1: So uh, let's throw it back in there Right at the
0: bottom, please Yeah, I think it should go right down the bottom with Troll Two. Hang on a second uh, Come here Oh, gosh, he's a squirmy little guy really no. is okay. No. okay. You. And then
1: you go and stay down there and never come back. Yeah,
0: definitely. My goodness.
1: I'm so sorry about that one. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I still enjoyed it despite
0: its complete lack of anything. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's an interesting catastrophe as a film. It's an entertaining one, I think But yes, it's definitely not something I would recommend anyone seek out No, for. I'm,
1: I'm just really surprised that those three actors agreed to be in that film Yeah,
0: it's a mystery <laughs>
1: <laughs> So next time, uh, we're going to be doing something a little bit different uh, So it's a film that we've both seen uh, mm. But it's more, it's more of a childhood nostalgia film mm. Childhood Still and something I th- think deserves uh, taking a look at. Mm. So the film that we'll be doing is... Willow. Ah, a Lucasfilm classic. Which came out in 1988 and was directed by... Ron Howard, (laughs) almost forgot.
0: (laughs) Yes, director of uh, the new solo Star Wars movie. Mm. We get to look at his first attempt at fantasy adventure. Can't wait. Should be interesting, yeah.
1: Thanks, everyone,
0: for joining us on this episode. Indeed, yes. And if you want to talk to us about this film, <laughs> goodness knows why you would, or uh, talk to us about other <laughs> ideas for films that we could look at, then follow us on Twitter and Instagram. We are there as Movie Oubliette. If you're not sure how to spell Oubliette,
1: it's... i I'm... Really bad at spelling, what was that?
0: O-U-B-L-I-E-G-G-B. Yeah, I think that clears it up. Yes, yeah, so do follow us on our socials and uh, give us some feedback. Another place you can give us feedback, of course, is on iTunes or your favourite podcasting platform. We would love to get your review and your star rating there. It really helps us out.
1: Yes, exactly. Tell us what you think. Uh, my name's Dan. I'm Conrad. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.
0: Bye. <laughs> You have a great body. Do you mind if I use it?